Be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 15. The word of the Lord says to us this morning, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been, and that which is to be has already been. And God seeks what has been given, what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Well, many of you heard me say that Brooke and I uh, have been married for four years. We met each other about five years ago, but that was actually not the first time I saw Brooke. In February of 2014, Brooke, her mom, and her dad came into an elders meeting of the church that I was on staff at seeking prayer because Brooke's mom was suffering for years at this point for something that no one really understood until a couple of months before that. People didn't know if she was going crazy. People didn't know if she was depressed. People didn't know if they were sinning against her or if she was sinning against them. And then thankfully, under just the common grace of the Lord, a doctor told her, maybe you should get an MRI on your head to where they found something around the size of a racquetball wedged between her brain. So she was coming to the elders for prayer because she was expecting a different season of life for her and for everyone around her. Yet, yet she stood before the elders or sat before the elders saying that I've been through this season of life and, and I'm giving myself over to the doctors to help me in whatever season God places me in after this. I, I fully submit myself to it. I fully give myself over to it, even if it brings me to the point of not waking up on the table. Her husband was sitting to her left, not nearly as bold or confident, who was not wanting any of those seasons to occur, but rather just wanted a season of his wife back. But even if he couldn't have his wife back, he wanted his wife next to him for much longer than he would live. And to Lori's right sat my future wife, a 22-year-old in college who was being asked to act not as a 22-year-old daughter in college is normally asked to act, a caretaker for her mom, 
a prayer for survival, a prayer for answers. Maybe, maybe she would have to step up after this and actually be the lady of the house. And so I saw before me people coming in, expecting and hoping for a different season of life. And by the Lord's grace, he delivered Lori from this tumor in her brain. And by the Lord's grace, a new season of life was there, but that didn't leave them empty of the feeling of being exhausted and being tired of the life that the Lord had provided. And so with that in mind, we encounter a text that has words that is often sung in songs with with a joyful heart and maybe even a a hippie-style melody, but is something that as we peer into it word by word, we see that that the writer of this text is, is looking at the extremes of life and just acknowledging, I have no idea what's going on, it all seems worthless, and I am exhausted. So we come to the text, many of you often feeling exhausted or as you're placed in a context of a feeling like the world is chaotic and, and your opportunity of owning the time is, is just an observation that never happens to you. And yet we see within the text that God is the one who, who sets the time of all the seasons, who, who sets not only the changes of the seasons, but the foundations of the seasons, knowing that we can trust in this Lord with fear in awe, in hopeful trust. So we come to this text acknowledging that we can trust in God's timing even when we, like the author, has no idea what's happening. So let me first ask you from the text, if you're using an outline that's been printed before you, I'm now at point one. <laughs> what is happening in verses one through eight? What is happening? This is, our, this is our response, not only when we read this text Just grammatically, you might look at it and be like, what in the world is happening? But also as we look around us, what is happening? Well, first I want to encourage you to look at the turmoil within the text. See the structure of this poem. Time is used roughly 30 times. Obviously, time is happening and changing and occurring. There's there's an X pattern of, of the grammar showing itself. So it looks like things are written out horizontally, but then they match other occurrences almost in an X pattern where these are definite things, much like putting flesh on a skeleton to observe how might we categorize the life that we have in front of us or the life that we have behind us. There is a time for this and a time for that and a time for this other thing and a time for things to come. And yet we see also the personality of the poem being the extremes of life, trapped in the tyranny of time. The author is fatalistic about his own experiences. These are dramatic words and fatalistic and extreme. There's a time for this and that no matter what time it is. And what seems to be most clear from this text is that nothing chronological is happening here. Nothing showing itself within a real pattern is occurring. It's not like you have this season of life and then you have this season of life, but it seems like the author is observing that everything is somewhat happening all at the same time. And just when we get through this pattern of life, here comes another pattern of life that seems to be not next, but on top of where we are. And the context of this poem is obviously coming after chapter 1 and chapter 2, where the author was taking great delight in the things of the world but here now cynically is acknowledging that even though he can take delight in the things of the world, the world's a mess and everyone's dying in the meantime. So he's searching and seeking. 
He says that we should enjoy our life and our work even though we're constantly tossed here and there. We, we see ourselves as a lie. And so our text, if, if the Proverbs of the Bible are positive wisdom, here Ecclesiastes is like the, the cynical sister who just reminds out of wisdom, yeah, but, but here's what life feels like. Or here's what you should expect because of what everyone has gone through before you. The preacher as he's called in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher brings together the big picture of life, the, the wholeness of life from one extreme to the other, but also the individual parts, the different seasons of life. I'm a sophomore in high school, or I have one kid, or I'm unemployed, or I'm parentless, even though I've lost children. The natural condition of man approaches this text being faced with the drama of we are trying to be as self-reliant as possible on ourselves. We want to make everything happen according to our good work. And what the author is just exposing right from the beginning, we're actually in control over none of it. Because just when there is a time for peace, there's a time for war. And just when there's a time for scattering, there's a time for harvesting. And so the personality of the poem and the context of the poem seems to be like everything is out of control. And so what we do and what we must do in this case is to look not just at the text. We want to see what the text says for itself because in that way it acts much like a mirror to our own lives. You might look at this poem and see it as a mirror and recognize things within it that are much like your own life. But also the text serves as a window where we can see beyond what the text is saying and actually see what it says about the God who gave it to his people himself. Everything has a season, the text says, yet we recognize that God does not. One of the most beneficial things that I learned from just reading the Psalms is is being mesmerized at the idea that God never sleeps. He never changes. He's never surprised, and everything comes at his own timing. He's, He's constant. We use the term sovereign over everything, not just over the big things like the weather, but also the thoughts and the the minor molecules in our own lives. He's constant and sovereign over all things. The, The things seem to swing back and forth in all of our lives, yet God remains still and constant and steady. I'm reminded of Psalm 104 where he sets the earth on its foundations. Think about that. Meditate on what that means in the midst of your own chaos. He sets the world on its foundation. So what this text does is it casts the the beginning of a long shadow from, from our particular circumstances or our particular occurrences or our singular seasons of life. And it casts a long shadow to for us to see who Christ is in himself. The Son of God, constant. And sovereign over all things. Because God is sovereign over times and seasons. This tells us who Christ has been. Who the Son of God has been. Who the Son of God was. And who the Son of God is. The text calls out that there's a time to be born. And yet we know in the New Testament we're at the right time. Or when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his Son. In Galatians 4. The text also not only says that there's a time to be born. But a time to die. We recognize that on the right day, at the right time, according to God's sovereign desire, everything was held back, even though his enemies were trying to press something on him. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
religious leaders may have plotted against him, but they were not able to crucify him until the appointed time, the, according to the time of the one who hangs all of our seasons up. The text also says that there's a time to rise, and we recognize every Easter that Jesus rose again at the right time on the third day, as all of the scriptures had promised about them. For from his birth to his death, and then on to his resurrection, Jesus did everything in a timely manner for the salvation of his people. And so when we look at these texts, and we see that there's a time for this and a time for that, it it should become quick to us to recognize of the Christ who is behind the text, or what the text is longing for. Christ owns the seasons of our lives. And in more particular, Christ owns the seasons of your life. Now, not to diminish what you may go through or have gone through or certainly what you will go through, but we recognize that the one that we worship is the one who holds all things together because everything was made by him and through him and for him. There was a time to plant, the text says, yet yet Jesus used the disciples to plant a vineyard for the kingdom to expand to the ends of the earth. I am the vine and you are the branches the testimony of John says. And there's also a time to pluck. And we see Jesus where he said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up there in Matthew 15. A time to heal the text longs for. We recognize Jesus performing miracles of the kingdom. And he made the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind see and the dead come to life by his own power. Jesus knew the time to throw evil out and to bring peace in. He recognized when it was time to throw the money changers out of the temple and declare that he is the one whom everyone should worship. And also, it was a time to build up. And so we see what Jesus has been doing ever since he came, building up his church person by person, where the keys of the kingdom that he handed over are the testimonies of the saints for all eternity. And even within not only what he did or his practical works, but also thinking about this emotionally, there this man of sorrows mourned at the tomb and wept for the lost. When it came time for personal relationships, Jesus was the one who sought out the lost and let go of those who refused him. He drew near to those who were said to be really far off, the outcasts of the city or even of the house, and because he knew how much they needed him as their savior, and so he, at the right time, drew so near to them. He renounced the scribes and the Pharisees and other proud, self-proclaimed righteous people, and when it came time for him to speak, he certainly spoke and he preached and he taught and he told of the miraculous things of who he is and when it was time to be silent, there he hung on the cross. After the trial of his life, he didn't speak of his own defense, but suffered in silence for those who he would love out of his own innocence. It was a time for him to remain silent for Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, Stephen would proclaim in Acts. Jesus knew the right time for everything. He knows the time to love and the time to show mercy to lost sinners who are calling out to him as 
their Savior. He, he knows the time to hate, standing against evil, not going to put up long and forever with things that are defaming his Father's glory. And soon he, ta- he knows the time of peace when he will bring an everlasting peace from beginning to end when his kingdom comes for his people. Jesus has perfect timing that this text longs for. So when we place ourselves inside the text, that's, that's not a wrong thing to do. You read this text and you go, I've been through that, and I long for that. I long for that, but I've, I've been through that. I'm through these three things right now. Or I'm seeing other people suffer in this area. You've got to recognize that Jesus has the perfect timing. He's the one who's the actual fulfillment of this preacher's long, futile outlook of life. Where we, we recognize in Romans that all of creation is longing because of the sin that is deeply rooted in its foundation. Yet Jesus comes to us as the fulfillment of all these longings at the right time. So I think one of the easiest ways to look at this text and bringing it home to us or walking away from the sermon or walking away from this morning is, do you trust, and do I trust, as I've been thinking about this text all week, do you trust the timing of God in the midst of stormy seasons or awesome seasons? Do you submit your clock, your paycheck, your timing, your prayer journal to the one who ultimately holds all things together, knowing that he is the one who at the right time is dispensing his goodness and glory upon his creation? Do you know him as in charge? And do you trust him as in charge? Do you see him through the life, whatever life you have, whatever chaos in the midst of it? Now, one of the unique things about being from the Midwest or from Oklahoma is Oklahoma's, Oklahomans, we have a tendency to try to one-up one another in life circumstances. You know, if I were to say, or if I were to hear you say like, oh, I really like baseball, I would say, oh, I, I played baseball. Or you go, oh, I have three kids. Oh, I, I want to have 70 kids. You know, there's this natural, oh, you've been through this. I've, I've been through that twice. Oh, I just, I had a car crash last week. Oh, man, I had this car crash one time, and the whole block blew up. <laughs> when we see life through this text, do we trust the one who is guiding us to receive it according to his ways? So what's going on in this text? Well, the text shows us that that God sets the time and seasons forever. And so when we feel much like the preacher in this text, when we recognize that the things in this text are much like the things that we are going through, are we trusting in the one who fulfilled the time in all of this text? So what is going on? The Lord is being the Lord. And do you trust him? And if you do, are you acting like it? Second thing, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with with this text or with this language or with your own life circumstances? Well, I want to encourage you to look at the struggle that's happening in verses 9 through 11. Look at the struggle here. Work is toilsome, it says. All of us us are are testimonies of that. None of us want to work, right? I got a couple of texts from some of you yesterday where you're out late in the day harvesting something. I wouldn't want to do that. Good for you, but it's a late Saturday afternoon, and and that's a hard thing to do. Or getting up early because you're raising kids who, if you don't feed them, they will starve, and if you don't put clothes on them, they will run around naked. Work is toilsome, it says, and it even seems futile. And this is a rebuke of man's efforts in the previous chapters to almost 
to almost try to ignore the, the hard things of life rather than to hone in on what is true and what is real. And so the main point of this poem, I think, is what is explained in verses 9 through 11 where, where God has established moments or times for a wide diversity of emotions and life to take place so that when we recognize the hardness of life, we recognize the one who overcame all of it for us, his people. When we recognize what we are being a part of, it becomes easier and easier to recognize the Savior as he is. Is the world a place of joy? The text says no. I was raised by probably a bad TV show where the theme song was happy, happy, joy, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. And the older you get, the more you recognize that's just a lie. Brooke and I are now at the point in life where people are done getting married and now they're starting to get divorced. Or in many times, people are growing their families and often losing children not just in the womb, but after the womb. Or, or people are in their second or third job after college, and they realize, I hate every part of my life, even though I tried to work for all of this before. Is the world a place of joy? No, the preacher says, but God has assigned things to mankind which bring Him glory, and that keeps us active and busy for our betterment, so that we can be built up in dependency on the only thing who is constant and stable in our own lives. These these hardships are but mere testimonies of God's love and his constancy and his own grace poured out on his own people. In the New Testament, you see that it was Jesus Christ who was the one who would fulfill the futile preachers that this text echoes throughout all eternity. Jesus redeems his people from the futile world by subjecting himself to it. So the glorious goodness of the good news of the gospel is that out of God's love, he sent his son not merely just to save us to himself or to bring us out of darkness, but but to place himself in the darkness where he would die because of the consequences for our sins and the penalties for our sins. And he did this out of love for his people. The, The idea in scripture is that Jesus was not just a savior, though he was a great savior, but that Jesus was also a very true substitute for all of his people's sins. Many of the seasons of life that this text talks about doesn't even bring up the identity of the sinfulness of man within it, though we recognize that behind all these occurrences are people who are sinful, yet out of God's love, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, by being a substitute for them on the cross. And so our reality or response is to not only recognize where we are in life and look around and be like, you know, it's not that great. But then we realize that the text is also a mirror. And it shows us that not only are things not that great, but but I'm actually very sinful. And the text of the New Testament says, I'm wretched. Not just not a great guy, but sinful. And so what we see is God came into the world through the person of Jesus, not just to make everything okay, but to make dead people alive. Or to make sinful people seen as redeemed. So that when the Father looks at you and I as Christians, who he sees is is not the mere placement of our sins, but who he actually sees is the Savior himself. 
and we're the ones standing beside him. Is it to say, if, if Jesus is your captain, then everyone on his team is accepted? And so what we see is Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. His experience and endurance through the frustration under the cursed world in such a way is the call of what the preacher could not even imagine, but what we look back and realize as his grace being bestowed on the world. His followers, now we see in the text, can experience deep significance where the preacher just felt burdened again and again. The struggle that we see in verse 11, we're encouraged to be content in God's understanding, not our own understanding. And at first the at first, the verse strikes you as something that is inspiring or even uplifting. Be content in God's understanding. But it's, but it's the context here that really brings out the tension where he actually wasn't happy as a result of God's work. The more God showed him about the world, the more he would become frustrated at his own sin and the world's sin. I don't know about you, but sometimes people tell you way more than you ever asked for. But not just from like a TMI circumstance, but also now that, you, now that you know maybe more of someone's story, it becomes such a heavy burden for you. And it's a joyful thing to hear testimonies of other people, what God has brought them through or where they are or what they're suffering through. Because like this text, it helps actually point us to the one who is the Savior. But it's still, the, the more I know, the more I feel burdened by it. I was a business major in college, and um, one of the things that was always haunting to me is every time you take a class on finance or economics, you started to fear that you were going to die of starvation because they would say things like, this is how you need to save money, or this is how you create wealth, or this is how you run a business, and all I can think about is I'm, I'm going to die because I cannot do that. In fact, I have an Excel sheet on my, on my laptop that, that's called Starvation, and it's our budget where the more we know is certainly what we ask for, like Adam and Eve wanted in the garden. But the more we know, we realize it actually becomes a burden. And so we need the Lord to have power over it and sovereignty over it, knowing that he's the only one who can hold it together. In verse 11, everything is appropriate. Or from eternity past to eternity future everything is appropriate in God's eyes looking at the text in the later part of verse 11 giving man this eternity or this perspective but not full understanding this is what burdens the reader eternity many ways seems too optimistic but remember that in its context an eternal perspective doesn't equal all-knowing but forward or backward awareness of what is truly happening in the world and it just leaves people to a more frustrated state of of awareness or worship, where we start to long like the writer longs. We remember what's written about in the book of Job, chapter 11. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And the more we are given glimpses of, the more and greater burden it becomes. And so this is the call of the text where we have eternity on our hearts. God has made us thinkers. God has made us wonderers. God has made us imaginative. God has made us innovative. But God has not made us his equal. Because like in Job, if if God were to actually dispense all the things that he knows and understands to his people, 
it would overwhelm us. It would make us cry. It would make us weep to the point of we actually don't want to fully know and understand all that the Lord holds together for the good of his people. Adam and Eve got a glimpse of that by eating of the apple. And they saw what evil was. Whereas God just wanted them to see what was good. Withholding evil from their eyes. Well, now they see, and now you and I experience, and now you and I can testify to, that there is a time for suffering. But you can't fully fathom all of it. And so we see the immutability of God or the unchanging nature of God where from this text, one of the big ideas that you can get away from this is that God is unchanging. A theological term for that is God is immutable. Immutable, where He has never changed from beginning to end. Whatever the attributes of God were before the universe was called into existence, they're precisely the same now. And will remain so forever. So necessarily so, they are the very perfections, the essential qualities of his being. His his power is unabated. His wisdom is undiminished. His holiness is faultless. And so we see the testimony of Romans 1 for his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Charles Spurgeon, a a 19th century preacher in London, says, Consider what we owe to God's unchanging nature. Though you have changed a thousand times, he has not changed once. He has not changed once, though you have sifted your intentions. He has not once swerved from his eternal purpose, but has still held his people Fast. So again, we see from the text, this is the Lord who we can trust. Even though the one who gives us all good things around us, we can still trust him in the times and seasons that seem to be out of control. We're, we're reminded of the second phrase of one of my favorite hymns. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they feel not, as thou hast been Thou forever will be, echoing the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understandings. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your straight or your path straight. So take note of the exhaustions in your own life. I don't, I don't think it's wrong to, to categorize what, what you've been through or where you're going. There, there was this really interesting Uh, psychology journal article that came out several years ago where it actually put a value on stress in people's lives. So on a scale from 1 to 100, how do we look at things that are really stressful? You know, the highest of that is, of course, the death of your own spouse. Just the stress that will be in your life for maybe the rest of your life. Or even being married is 50 points on this scale. Even if it's a good marriage, it's still really stressful. Gaining a new family member, whether through adoption or birth, is 40 points. Or, or having a, an adjustment in your business. Or, or things changing in the operations of your life. That's also this huge sense of stress in people's lives. Losing a job. Taking out a mortgage. Having a conversation is stressful, this journal would say. And yet we recognize that there are so many of those things that are happening all the time. I mean, this, this room right here is like a giant stress bubble. And yet we can go to the one who doesn't change 
and put our trust eternally in Him. Take note of the exhaustions in your life and trust the Lord with all of your life. Dig dig deep into the motives of your heart and remember that the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, His ways are unsearchable and His judgments are inscrutable. Ultimately, no one can discover what God is doing, but we can trust in the Lord our God with all of our hearts because we recognize what He has done for us in His faithfulness that has never run out. I mean, just the testimony of this church This church is really, really old, and I don't mean you. I mean the people who have gone before you. 120 years of the Lord speaking through this body towards the ends of this town. So we are recognizing more application from this text where we can live like God is in charge, but we also see in verse 12, to be joyful in Christ's glory and His justification to do good with every season that you're given. Having the aspiration of of whatever the Lord has put on my table, I'm going to be faithful in pursuing Him and in doing good in whatever task He's given me. And also to eat and drink under Christ's gift. Where verse 2 starts, being born, is where the last part of verse 8 ends, in peace. Like I said, there, there are many things in Brooke and I's lives that have seemed to run out of control. And this, is, this has been hard for us to, to reconcile with and to work with because, honestly, our last couple of years have been really great. It's been really peaceful for us. We, we've enjoyed where we live. We love who our friends are. We, we love what the Lord is doing in our lives. But it's been very much a terrible year for many around us who we deeply love. The anxiety and the frustration of, of knowing who our, what our loved ones and our friends are going through is so frustrating and tense in our lives. We, we recognize that we can't help them ever hold their child again because of its loss. We can't help them never feel pain again. We can't help them in the life of loneliness that they endure every night. We can't help them watch their father pass away or missing their mom never knowing that she'll return or we can't help them find purpose in the drudgery of work. We, we ultimately can't help them repair their own marriage or get a job when they're unemployed but we're reminded, we're reminded of what God is doing in their lives and our lives is for the building and betterment of His kingdom. It's encouraging to us that as we pray to God, God never prays to us. You get that? We we call out to Him to to hold things together, to to make us respond to His will, to make us love His will and to find joy in it, knowing that it's a goodness for His people. But He's not asking for us to help Him. God is not praying to you or to me. And so through that, we can rest in the reality that He is over all things. He controls all things. No hair on my head is beyond His comprehension and redemptive desires. So there's this unique resonation within these verses of Genesis 3 where God commanded Adam to rule over everything, yet do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even though we are tempted to try to know more and more things of the evil world around us, we're certainly called, most desperately called, into following the Lord and to pursue Him with all of our lives. So an application, again, is to live life like you have a seat at the table. Eat and drink and enjoy it. I don't know if you've ever been invited to a party where you actually have a seat at the table. Maybe you've gone to a wedding where they have a little place mark for it. I keep all those because that made me feel really important. 
like I was supposed to be there. And we remember that the Lord is preparing a banquet for his bride where, where all of his people will come into that chamber room and know exactly where they sit. And they will see the king at the end of the table who prepared them a feast where they can eat and drink and enjoy his glory face to face forever. So live like you have a seat at the table knowing that the good king is not only preparing something for you but is over everything that you're a part of now. So lastly, why is God allowing this? I was told like 300 times this weekend to keep the sermon at 35 minutes, and it's just not happening. So lastly, why is God allowing this? <laughs> that worked. That, that kind of worked. <laughs> why is God allowing this? We see in verses 14 through 15. The, the preacher has this final conclusion that whatever God does endures. And no one can change God's plans. No matter how frustrating we might find this world, we must learn to live within pursuing Him and all of His glory through it. In a proverbial form, these last couple of verses take place where He speaks of everything that God does. The the preacher here speaks to us that everything that God does as enduring forever and that God will keep doing what He does forever and ever. And when we recognize that He is unchanging and behind that we recognize Him as good and just and holy and majestic, and glorious in all things, our natural response is to want Him to do whatever He's going to do forever and ever. So when we recognize the seasons of life that we're in and we see them as not okay, we realize that the Lord of Lords is doing what He's doing and our response is keep going. Keep going. Look at the goal of God's in verse 15. The preacher asserts that God's purpose behind his actions is to strike fear in the hearts of his own. Now, fear is something that we see all the time in the Bible, but we don't often recognize it for what it is. This idea of he wants to strike holy reverence and awe into those who see him. The Lord wants us to respond to him in fear, but that's That's actually a good thing because if he was not powerful or scary to evil, then he would not be someone to place our trust in. If he couldn't hold back the waters in Exodus or to bring fire down in 2 Peter or to convert your heart from deadness to life, if he couldn't do that, then he's not to be feared. Because anyone can try, but only he can do. I'm reminded of the illustration that we're given from C.S. Lewis's best novel, in my opinion, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you have probably read it, whether as a child or you read it to your kids, where someone was talking to a beaver. That's how every good story continues whenever beavers talk to them. Where someone was talking about this creature or this lion named Aslan. Aslan is a lion, Someone said, the lion, the great lion. And Susan, another character in this book, says, oh, I thought he was a man. But if he's a lion, is he safe? Now, all of us have been to the zoo. Of course, lions aren't safe. Have you seen a lion? They can literally rip your head off. So Susan was right and to ask, I thought he was a man, but if he's a lion, is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Beaver responds to her, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. 
He's the king. He is one to be feared. He is one to tremble in the face of. He is the one to where when he walks in the room, you want to do what is recognized in Revelation, where you just fall down on your face or cry out like Isaiah because your lips are unclean. And yet he is good. He does good work. He gives his people food and drink. He gives his people mindfulness. He acts in all of life. He shows himself in command. God keeps seeking what he sought before, the scripture says. So we should fear him because of his complete understanding in the midst of our seasons. We should fear him because he's the only one to be revered through life's horrible situations. We should fear him and have awe of him and be reverent towards him because he is the only one who we can trust. God sets the time forever so that people can stand in fear and awe of him. And we can do this because he's really, really good. He's doing all of this for his people through the glory of his son. So you might encounter this text as exhausted or feeling like life is chaotic or you have no sense of ownership over time. But I hope you leave this text knowing what to do. Fear the Lord in in whom you can trust and have complete awe of his majestic ways. We can trust in God's timing. We can trust in God himself. So in conclusion, I just want to remind you what has been written about in Mark 6 where Jesus begins to go after his disciples on a sea. It says there, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he, and he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought they saw a ghost and cried out. For all they saw in him was that he was terrifying. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Now there's much to be said about this short story, and you need to hear, and you would be right to make much of the idea of Jesus pursuing his people, or the miracle of walking on the water. And you'd be right to make much of Jesus making the wind stop immediately, but but I want you to place yourself in the shoes of those disciples. The season of chaos that they were in. The season of darkness that they were literally in. The season of dread where they thought something evil was coming before them. The season of seeing death as intimate before a storm was going to kill them. And it was Jesus at the right time who got into the boat with them. For everything there is a season. And in the true presence of Christ Jesus, it is always a time for peace for his people. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning being reminded of the reality of the world that that we are in. And so we ask that you would give us right understanding and, and patient understanding of why you have us where we are. But more than anything, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and guide us towards a righteous enjoyment and joyful experience of trust. Like a child who holds on to his parents. May we trust in you with all of our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word and what it means to us and how it guides us. We pray that it would transform us more in the likeness of your son. We pray this in his name and by his power. Amen.